Chapter 12 The Edge Forecasters had predicted snow, and on the evening of December 13, 2007, it arrived. Ahead of the downfall, commuters rushed home early from work, bringing gridlocked highways to a standstill. Last-minute shoppers scurrying, scurried into supermarkets to pick up bottled water. Neighbors emerged from their front doors and scattered salt on their steps, hoping to ease the next morning's shoveling duties. By nightfall, the city's hub had quiet, hubbub had quiet to a murmur, and Boston slept under a thick blanket of white. I was tired, so I turned in early, at 9, even before Brian had made it home. I was scheduled for back-to-back bartending shifts the next day and badly needed some rest. Maybe I won't have to go in because of the weather, I thought. Things seldom went that way, but I could hope. Buzz, buzz, buzz. I lurched toward the alarm clock at my bedside and switched it off, 8.50 a.m. I glanced over at Brian, who must have come in after I knocked out. I hadn't even heard him. He stirred, turned over, and looked sleepily in my direction. What are you doing today, he asked. I gotta work later, I groaned. I pulled up the comforter around my neck. Just five more minutes, I told myself. When I woke up again, the red digits on the clock read 9.40 a.m. Brian had showered and dressed. He popped up his head in the bedroom. I have to make some stops on my way home, so I'll get in late, he told me. I'll see you when I get back. Seconds later, he was out the door. I stretched to get my phone from the nightstand. Two voicemails. I pressed play. Miss Guerrero, said a woman's voice, we have, an, we have an urgent financial matter to discuss with you regarding your credit card account. This is our fifth and final attempt before legal action will be taken. Please return our call immediately. This is an attempt to collect a debt. Click. The next message follow. Diane, I'm calling you on behalf of the Regis Financial Office, I heard. It's extremely important that you come by our office as soon as you can. We need to talk with you about your Stafford loan. Click. I flung back the comforter and went to the bathroom. I turned on the faucet, leaned my head down into the sink bowl, and splashed cold water on my face. As the holidays neared, the city buzzed with lightness and joy. I wanted so much to be a part of it, but couldn't fully do it. Do you know what it takes for a cheery and highly optimistic person such as myself not to enjoy Christmas? A lot, so you know crap had to be unsettled. Even Everyone seemed so happy. Even the usual Grinches chirped hello to passersby. Salvation Army volunteers, with their rosy cheeks and big grins, stood out in front of Macy's and rang their bells to welcome donations. I was like Alanis Morissette in her hand-in-my-pocket video, standing naked in the middle of all the Christmas cheer, although I wasn't singing or happy to be naked. I was just dull and blah. In late November, following Thanksgiving, I tried to jolt myself into the spirit by window shopping near Downtown Crossing. I came home depressed. The crowds, the bright lights, the music, the family strolling gleefully along the, along the boulevards, it all made me keenly aware of how alone I was. I sleepwalked through my days, all of which looked exactly alike. Home, drinking. From the time I dragged myself out of the bed, I began counting the minutes until I could crawl back under the sheets. I'd lost my grip on everything important to me, and soldiering on was the best I could manage. Here and there, I'd have a halfway decent moment, a laugh, a little relief while watching TV. But then I watched something that made me hate my life and want to trade places with someone else. Morning turned into afternoon, and before I knew it, it was time for my evening shift. After Jasmine's sola, I'd taken a job at a nightclub. I reached the tea entrance, descended the stairs, and began mentally preparing myself for the evening. I mean, uh, 
descendants are from the evening. I was starting to really dislike my work environment. I mean, at first it was fun and easy money, but it was also mind-numbing and superficial. And like every job, it has its share of drama, not to mention the sketchy dudes, like one of the regulars who was seated at the bar stool when my shift began. What can I get for you, sir? The usual? I asked, although I started mixing the gin and tonic he typically ordered. When I turned back, ar- back around, he stared right at my breast. A real original a-hole. It's nasty out there, isn't it, sweetie, he said, keeping his eyes locked on my blouse. He stood, leaned over the bar, and motioned for me to come closer, as if he was about to tell me a secret. How would you like someone to keep you warm tonight, honey, he said. His breath reeked. I gave his drink without flinching. No thanks, I snapped, picking up the glass and slamming it down in front of him. Will that be all, sir? He scowled and returned to his stool. Merry Christmas to you, cunt. He muttered under his breath. I endured this sort of sexual harassment a lot. Sometimes it was from the customers. Other times it was from the manager who ran the bar or the guy who owned the restaurant. Not only did it disgust me, it was very upsetting. I was more fragile than I'd ever been, and some jerk was just doing all he could to get to my freaking underwear. Most of the time, I could ignore it, but on this day, the man's insult made me want to climb over the counter and strangle him. The crazy thing is, I couldn't even have worked up the energy for that. I was over it. I was wiped out when I got home. I was coming down from a cold, so on the way back to our place, I swung by a bodega and bought some Tylenol. I should call in sick tomorrow. I flopped down on the soda, flipped on the TV, and surfed through the channels. All the news was about the storm cleanup. My phone rang. I could tell by the area code that it was a Colombian number. I let it go to voicemail. A half hour later, I listened to the message. Diane, this is your poppy, he said with a cracked voice. Please call me. No one has heard you from so long. You're not in trouble. I'm not going to yell at you. Please, Chipola. I just want to know that you're doing okay. Beep. I hadn't talked to either one of my parents in forever. They rang all the time, of course, but like the creditors, I ignored their pleas. Since mommy had relocated in Madrid, she emailed constantly and begged me to visit. I didn't respond. In others' view, I'm sure it seemed like I didn't care about my mother and father, like I enjoyed seeing them hurt. Not at all. It broke my heart to know that I was breaking theirs, and yet the angst that surged through me whenever I heard their voices their voices was more painful than knowing I was alienating them. When we did catch up, the conversations were stilted and awkward. Where do you begin when you haven't talked to someone in a year? How do you talk through all the moments you've missed? You really can't. And every time I put down the phone after talking with them, I felt as if my own mother and father were strangers to me, people I'd perhaps known in their former life, but whom I did not recognize anymore. I shocked myself when I began dialing my father's number. In the voicemail, he sounded more frail than ever. I wanted to check up on him. Papi, I said. Hola, Hija. Is that you? There was a sleep in his voice. I glanced up at the clock on the living room wall. 10 p.m. Yes, it's me, I said. How are you? I'm okay, he whispered. It's great to hear from you. What's been happening? Nothing much, I said, which is a standard answer I gave whenever anyone probed into how I was doing. I couldn't bring myself to tell him about the train wreck my life had become, which is why I directed the spotlight back to him. How have you been, I asked. How is the family? He sighed. Things are the same, he told me. One of his brothers had been robbed while riding his bike to the grocery store. The week before, he heard from my mother's sister that Eric had been laid off from his job, and my father, who still hadn't been able to find work in all this time, was low on money. But I don't want you to worry about me, he told me. I'll be okay. When Poppy said don't worry, it often meant he was down to his last $20. I had zero money. 
but I felt so badly for him that I offered to wire him some cash. He wouldn't hear of it. Use it for school, he told me. That's your focus right now. We'd been on the line for less than five minutes, but I was eager to hang up. I love you, Poppy, I told him, trying to end the call. I love you too, he said. I miss you so much. When can you come here? I don't know, I said. We'll see, but I'll call you later. You promise, he said. I promise, I said, although we both knew the truth. My Poppy might have as well have been on Neptune. That's how far away he seemed. I knew he and Mommy both adored me as any parent can cherish a child, and yet I felt felt like I didn't belong to them anymore, like I didn't have a home, a center, a base, a foundation, a place where I was from and could go back to when things got rocky. If I had an argument with Brian, for instance, I longed to be able to go to my mother's house and talk it through her with her. At 14, I'd somehow been able to do stuff down, been able to stuff down as much, much of what I was feeling. But as I got into my 20s, the decade when you're figuring out everything, the gaping home at my life center had become impossible to disregard. At the mention of my parents' names, I get all jammed up. I'd revert to the child I once was, to a girlhood that had been over far sooner than it should have been. I'd at least been able to lean on Amelia and Eva in high school and early college, but that safety net had vanished. I'd wanted so badly to prove that I could take care of myself, that I didn't need anyone, that I was a full grown-up. I clearly needed others, but by the time I admitted that to myself, I didn't alienate everyone else close to me. That realization added to my sorrow. School had become a joke. I was pissed at everything and everyone. My grades were in the toilet. In three of my classes, I was on track to earning a C-. In one course, I was outright failing. A few of my professors encouraged me to switch from letter grade to a pass-fail in order to keep from ruining my GPA. I had been considering grad school. I had my eye on law, but with such a poor academic performance, I was ruining my chances of being admitted. At times, I tried to keep up with my assignments, but because I hadn't been able to afford my books, I had to borrow them from friends for an hour or two at a time. I needed tutoring, but I didn't have the mental energy or the resources to seek it out. And when I did show up for class, I was completely fatigued. I'd either worked the late, late the night before, or I had a hung- hangover, and often both. I was up to my eyeballs in debt. By the start of my senior year, I owed almost $80,000. That may not seem like a tremendous amount to some. Many complete schools with three times as much debt. But for me, it seemed impossible to ever repay. Once I'd taken all the federal financial aid I could get, I turned to credit cards. Within months, I'd maxed out a Visa card and a MasterCard, which is when creditors' calls become relentless. I shouldn't have applied for the cars in the first place, but I had no other choice at the time. I also had the financial smarts of a three-year-old. When mommy and poppy were deported, I hadn't yet even been taught how to drive, much less sidestep ridiculous interest rates. Brian tried to wade in, but I shut him down. During earlier difficult periods, I looked to the arts. Performance had always been my salvation, an experience that buoyed me in the most treacherous waters. That anger was gone. All throughout college, I had this burning desire to express myself artistically, but there wasn't many outlets for that. I yearned to find my way back onto the stage, even in the most amateur production. But because of everything that was happening, and because I'd sunk so low emotionally, I couldn't seem to find a way to do that. Melancholy can feed creativity, yet it's also capable of killing it. I said nothing about my condition to anyone. That's the thing about depression. 
It's not a topic for breezy, polite dinner conversation. It's easier to tell someone, I have a headache, or even, I have cancer, than it is to say, the bottom has fallen out of my life. You turn into this helpless mute, wandering aimlessly through a wilderness in search of water, with no ability to scream out that you're dying of thirst. Depression is not like sadness. It's not how you feel after cutting things off with a lover or losing a job. Those things hurt, of course, but even mid the agony, you know there'll come a moment when the heaviness lifts. Despair is different. It's the absence of hope. It's a long, flat road with no horizon in the distance. It's the path my brother once walked on. My eyes shot open. In the shadows, I reached for my phone, turned it on, held it right to my face so the light wouldn't wake up Brian, who'd come home by then, 2.52 a.m. For the longest time, I tried to make myself nod off. I couldn't. I kept thinking about all that had happened in the previous eight years, about the day I'd come home to find Mommy and Poppy missing, about how much effort it took for me to lie there and keep breathing. This crap is way too hard. I slid from beneath the covers and wedged my feet into my white slippers next to my bed. Without turning on the light, I staggered my way to the living room and creaked open a closet door. I pulled out my long black wool coat and put it on. I then tiptoed to the front door, turned the handle, and stepped out into the hall. Our building had eight floors. Brian and I lived on the first. I walked over to the staircase that led to the rooftop and slowly climbed. When I emerged onto the terrace, the icy air stung my face. My sockless feet trembled. I zipped my coat all the way up to the top and clutched my arms around my chest. Light flakes a nearly imperceptible twinkling stardust, layered freshly snow over the gray cement. I looked out over the neighborhood, eerily silent and beautiful. I shuffled toward the building's edge and stopped when I came within a foot. No wall or barrier enclosed the landing. I lowered myself onto the ground and inched forward until my feet dangled over the side. I poked my head over the ledge and stared down. A parking lot, one with only a few cars in it, but was below. I visualized my body, ashen and paralyzed, lying across the gravel. Am I going to do this? I'd come close before to ending it all. Once when Brian and I were traveling out together, we had a heated argument. I was so distraught that I dragged up a chair to my balcony wall and climbed climbed the top of it so I could hurl myself over. No, Brian shouted as he darted from the room to yanking back. Diane, stop it. You can't do this. After he'd calmed me down, he tried to reason with me. Can you imagine how it would hurt me and your family if you took your life? He asked. You're effing crazy if you give up. He had temporarily restored my senses. Because when you spiral into desolation, you're no longer rational. In fact, you already feel dead. The suicide act is a mere formality. This night wasn't like the one on the balcony. I faced a simple choice about whether to jump, and no person was there to pull me back from the brink. Am I really ready to do this? The spool of thoughts had been running through my head for weeks started up. I'm useless. I'll never amount to anything. I'm not smart enough to get through college. How can I help mommy and poppy when I can't even help myself? The world would be better off without me in it. I've been telling myself that things would turn around, that tomorrow would be brighter, but it wasn't. Maybe if I'd been older, maybe if I had a template for overcoming crisis, I might have realized things would eventually improve. That a better existence was, pos- existence was possible on the other side of the anguish. But I didn't yet have the perceptive, perceptive that only years of waiting through horrendous circumstances can bring. At 22, all I could see was darkness. I peered down at the lot. 
As I did, my left slipper fell from my foot. I tried to catch it by squeezing my toes, but it got away from me. As I sat contemplating the end, I wasn't scared. A peace I'd never sensed settled over me along the lo- with, the, with the snowflakes. My lids grew heavy with exhaust- exhaustion. With my legs still swaying over the edge, I lowered my body onto the cement and dozed off. I don't know how long I was out, but a strong wind gust awakened me. Where am I? I pushed onto my elbows and gazed around, confused about why I was on the rooftop. Then all at once I remembered, and my precarious position spooked me. My god, what am I doing? My stomach sank. I scooted backward and tried to get up, but as I rose, I felt disoriented and groggy. I lost my balance and almost fell over. I then slipped off the ledge. My heart hammered away in my chest. I clasped the pavement with my palms and struggled to maneuver my whole body back onto the ledge. It was windy and I was weak. But with every cell of my body, with every ounce of strength I could conjure up, I hoisted myself to safety. I stumbled to the rooftop center and dropped down cross-legged. I was breathing heavily. Holy crap, did that just happen? Hours before, I'd been desperate to take my life, but only if I could do so on my terms. In the split second that when a decision slipped out of my control, my impulse for survival jolted me from despair. A vision of my mommy and poppy, doubled over in grief after hearing I was dead, flooded my head. They'd endured so much heartache. They'd put it all on the line to come to this country so I'd have a chance to make something of myself. With another centimeter, with a slight turn of my wrist to the left or the right, all they'd given up would have been for naught. The same deep love that can wound us beyond repair also has the power to preserve us. When we've lost determination to continue breathing, when we have no will whatsoever to soldier forward, our care for others is the one thing that can keep us marching forward. We stay alive for one another, often with more resolve and fight than we ever would have mustered on our own behalf. I don't know what I thought I owed myself, but I did know I owed at least two people, my parents, more than this. They'd paid too great a price for me to discard my life so senselessly. It wasn't time for me to go. Not like this.